Chapter Ten, Part A of A Woman's Life by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Ten, Part A. The next few days were very sad, as they always must be directly after a death. The absence of the familiar face from its accustomed place makes the house seem empty and each time the eye falls on anything the dear dead one has had in constant use a fresh pang of sorrow darts through the heart there is the empty chair the umbrella still standing in the hall the glass which the maid has not yet washed in every room there is something lying just as it was left for the last time the scissors an odd glove the fingered book the numberless other objects which, insignificant in themselves, become a source of sharp pain because they recall so vividly the loved one who has passed away. And the voice rings in one's ears till it seems almost a reality, but there is no escape from the house haunted by this presence, for others are suffering also, and all must stay and suffer with each other. In addition to her natural grief, Jeanne had to bear the pain of her discovery. She was always thinking of it, and the terrible secret increased her former sense of desolation tenfold, for now she felt that she could never put her trust or confidence in any one again. The baron soon went away, thinking to find relief from the grief which was deadening all his faculties in change of air and change of scene, and the household at Les Peuples resumed its quiet, regular life again. Then Paul fell ill, and Jeanne passed twelve days in an agony of fear, unable to sleep and scarcely touching food. The boy got well, but there remained the thought that he might die. What should she do if he did? What would become of her? Gradually there came a vague longing for another child, and soon she could think of nothing else. She had always fancied she should like two children, a boy and a girl, and the idea of having a daughter haunted her. But since Rosalie had been sent away, she had lived quite apart from her husband, and at the present moment it seemed utterly impossible to renew their former relations. Julien's affections were centred elsewhere, she knew that, and on her side the mere thought of having to submit to his caresses again made her shudder with disgust. Still, she would have overcome her repugnance, so tormented was she by the desire of another child, if she could have seen any way to bring about the intimacy she desired. But she would have died rather than let her husband guess what was in her thoughts, and he never seemed to dream of approaching her now. Perhaps she would have given up the idea had not each night the vision of a daughter playing with Paul under the plane tree appeared to her. Sometimes she felt she must get up and join her husband in his room. Twice, in fact, she did glide to his door, but each time she came back without having turned the handle, her face burning with shame. The baron was away, her mother was dead, and she had no one to whom she could confide this delicate secret. She made up her mind at last to tell the Abbe Picot her difficulty, under the seal of confession. She went to him one day and found him in his little garden, reading his breviary among the fruit trees. She talked to him for a few minutes about one thing and another. Then, Monsieur l'abbé, I want to confess, she said with a deep blush. 
He put on his spectacles to look at her better, for the request astonished him. I don't think you can have any very heavy sins on your conscience, he said with a smile. No, but I want to ask your advice on a subject so, so painful to enter upon, that I dare not talk about it in an ordinary way, she replied, feeling very confused. He put on his priestly air immediately. Very well, my daughter, come to the confessional, and I will hear you there. But she suddenly felt a scruple at talking of such things in the quietness of an empty church. No, Monsieur le Curé, after all, if you will let me, I can tell you here what I want to say. See, we will go and sit in your little arbor over there. As they walked slowly over to the arbor, she tried to find the words in which she could best begin her confidence. They sat down, and she commenced, as if she were confessing. My father, then hesitated, said again, My father, then stopped altogether, too ashamed to continue. The priest crossed his hands over his stomach and waited for her to go on. Well, my daughter, he said, perceiving her embarrassment, you seem afraid to say what it is. Come now, be brave. My father, I want to have another child, she said abruptly, like a coward throwing himself headlong into the danger he dreads. The priest, hardly understanding what she meant, made no answer, and she tried to explain herself, but in her confusion her words became more and more difficult to understand. I am quite alone in life now. My father and my husband do not agree. My mother is dead, and, and the other day I almost lost my son, she whispered with a shudder. What would have become of me if he had died? The priest looked at her in bewilderment. There, there, come to the point, he said. I want to have another child, she repeated. The abbé was used to the coarse pleasantries of the peasants, who did not mind what they said before him, and he answered with a sly smile and a knowing shake of the head, Well, I don't think there need be much difficulty about that. She raised her clear eyes to his and said hesitatingly, But, but you don't understand that since, since that trouble with the maid, my husband and I, my husband and I live quite apart. These words came as a revelation to the priest, accustomed as he was to the promiscuity and easy morals of the peasants. Then he thought he could guess what the young wife really wanted, and he looked at her out of the corner of his eye, pitying her, and sympathizing with her distress. Yes, yes, I know exactly what you mean. I can quite understand that you should find your, your widowhood hard to bear. You are young, healthy, and it is only natural, very natural. He began to smile, his lively nature getting the better of him. Besides, the church allows these feelings sometimes, he went on, gently tapping Jeanne's hands. What are we told? That carnal desires may be satisfied lawfully in wedlock only. Well, you are married, are you not? She, in turn, had not at first understood what his words implied. But when his meaning dawned on her, her face became crimson and her eyes filled with tears. Oh, Monsieur le Curé, what do you mean? What do you think? I assure you, I assure and she could not continue for her sobs. Her emotion surprised the abbé, and he tried to console her. 
There, there, he said. I did not mean to pain you. I was only joking, and there's no harm in a joke between honest people. But leave it all in my hands. I will speak to Monsieur Julien. She did not know what to say. She wished now that she could refuse his help, for she feared his want of tact would only increase her difficulties. But she did not dare say anything. Thank you, Monsieur le Curé, she stammered, and then hurried away. The next week was passed by Jeanne in an agony of doubts and fears. Then, one evening, Julien watched her all through dinner with an amused smile on his lips, and evinced towards her a gallantry which was faintly tinged with irony. After dinner they walked up and down the Baroness's avenue, and he whispered in her ear, "'Then we are going to be friends again?' She made no answer, and kept her eyes fixed on the ground, where there was a straight line, hardly so thickly covered with grass as the rest of the path. It was the line traced by the Baroness's foot, which was gradually being effaced, just as her memory was fading, and, as she looked at it, Jeanne's heart felt bursting with grief. She seemed so lonely, so separated from everybody. "'For my part, I am only too pleased,' continued Julien. "'I should have proposed it before, but I was afraid of displeasing you.' The sun was setting. It was a mild, soft evening, and Jeanne longed to rest her head on some loving heart, and there sob out her sorrows. She threw herself into Julien's arms, her breast heaving, and the tears streaming from her eyes. He looked at her in surprise, thinking this outburst was occasioned by the love she still felt for him, and unable to see her face, he dropped a condescending kiss upon her hair. Then they went indoors in silence, and he followed her to her room. To him this renewal of their former relations was a duty, though hardly an unpleasant one, while she submitted to his embraces as a disgusting, painful necessity, and resolved to put an end to them for ever, as soon as her object was accomplished. Soon, however, she found that her husband's caresses were not like they used to be. They may have been more refined. They certainly were not so complete. He treated her like a careful lover, instead of being an easy husband. "'Why do you not give yourself up to me as you used to do?' she whispered one night, her lips close to his. "'To keep you out of the family way, of course,' he answered with a chuckle. She started. "'Don't you wish for any more children, then?' she asked. His amazement was so great that, for a moment, he was silent, then. "'Eh? What do you say?' he exclaimed. "'Are you in your right senses? Another child? I should think not, indeed. We've already got one too many.' squalling and costing money and bothering everybody another child no thank you she clasped him in her arms pressing her lips to his and murmured oh i entreat you make me a mother once more don't be so foolish he replied angrily pray don't let me hear any more of this nonsense she said no more but she resolved to trick him into giving her the happiness she desired she tried to prolong her kisses, and threw her arms passionately around him, pressing him to her, and pretending a delirium of love she was very far from feeling. She tried every means to make him lose control over himself, but she never once succeeded. 
tormented more and more by her desire, driven to extremities, and ready to do or dare anything to gain her ends, she went again to the Abbe Picot. She found him just finishing lunch, with his face crimson from indigestion, and anxious to hear the result of his mediation. Well, he exclaimed, my husband does not want any more children, she answered at once, without any of the hesitation or shamefaced timidity she had known before. The abbé got very interested, and turned towards her, ready to hear once more of those secrets of wedded life, the revelation of which made the task of confessing so pleasant to him. How is that? he asked. In spite of her determination to tell him all, Jeanne hardly knew how to explain herself. He, he refuses to make me a mother. The priest understood at once. It was not the first time he had heard of such things, but he asked for all the details, and enjoyed them as a hungry man would a feast. When he had heard all, he reflected for a few moments, then said in a calm, matter-of-fact tone he might have used if he had been speaking of the best way to ensure a good harvest. My dear child, the only thing you can do is to make your husband believe you are pregnant. Then he will cease his precautions, and you will become so in reality. Jeanne blushed to the roots of her hair, but determined to be ready for every emergency, she argued, but, but suppose he should not believe me. The curé knew too well the ins and outs of human nature, not to have an answer for that. Tell everybody you are enceinte. When he sees that everyone else believes it, he will soon believe it himself. You will be doing no wrong, he added, to quiet his conscience of advising this deception. The church does not permit any connection between man and woman, except for the purpose of procreation. Jeanne followed the priest's artful advice, and a fortnight later told Julian she thought she was enceinte. He started up. It isn't possible. It can't be. She gave him her reasons for thinking so. Bah, he answered. You wait a little while. Every morning he asked, Well? But she always replied, No, not yet. I am very much mistaken if I am not enceinte. He also began to think so, and his surprise was only equalled by his annoyance. Well, I can't understand it, was all he could say. I'll be hanged if I know how it can have happened. At the end of a month she began to tell people the news, but she said nothing about it to the Comtesse Gilberte, for she felt an old feeling of delicacy in mentioning it to her. At the very first suspicion of his wife's pregnancy, Julien had ceased to touch her, then angrily thinking, well, at any rate, this brat wasn't wanted. He made up his mind to make the best of it, and recommenced his visits to his wife's room. Everything happened as the priest had predicted, and Jeanne found she would a second time become a mother. Then, in a transport of joy, she took a vow of eternal chastity as a token of her rapturous gratitude to the distant divinity she adored, and thenceforth closed her door to her husband. She again felt almost happy. She could hardly believe that it was barely two months since her mother had died, and that only such a short time before she had thought herself inconsolable. Now her wounded heart was nearly healed, and her grief had disappeared, while in its place was merely a vague melancholy, like the shadow of a great sorrow resting over her life. 
It seemed impossible that any other catastrophe could happen now. Her children would grow up and surround her old age with their affection, and her husband could go his way while she went hers. Towards the end of September, the Abbe Picot came to the chateau, in a new cassock which had only one week's stains upon it, to introduce his successor, the Abbe Tolbiac. The latter was small, thin, and very young, with hollow, black-encircled eyes, which betokened the depth and violence of his feelings, and a decisive way of speaking as if there could be no appeal from his opinion. The Abbe Picot had been appointed Doyen of Gauderville. Jeanne felt very sad at the thought of his departure. He was connected in her thoughts with all the chief events of her life, for he had married her, christened Paul, and buried the Baroness. She liked him because he was always good-tempered and unaffected, and she could not imagine Etouvent without the Abbe Picot's fat figure trotting past the farms. He himself did not seem very rejoiced at his advancement. "'I have been here eighteen years, Madame la Comtesse,' he said, "'and it grieves me to go to another place. Oh, this living is not worth much, I know, and as for the people, well, the men have no more religion than they ought to have.' The women are not so moral as they might be, and the girls never dream of being married until it is too late for them to wear a wreath of orange blossoms. Still, I love the place. The new curé had been fidgeting impatiently during this speech, and his face had turned very red. I shall soon have all that changed, he said abruptly, as soon as the other priest had finished speaking and he looked like an angry child in his worn but spotless cassock, so thin and small was he. The Abbe Picot looked at him sideways, as he always did when anything amused him. "'Listen, l'abbé,' he said, "'you will have to chain up your parishioners if you want to prevent that sort of thing, and I don't believe even that would be any good.' "'We shall see,' answered the little priest in a cutting tone. The old curé smiled and slowly took a pinch of snuff. Age and experience will alter your views, l'abbé. If they don't, you will only estrange the few good churchmen you have. When I see a girl come to Mass with a waist bigger than it ought to be, I say to myself, well, she is going to give me another soul to look after, and I try to marry her. You can't prevent them going wrong, but you can find out the father of the child and prevent him forsaking the mother, "'Marry them, l'abbé, marry them, and don't trouble yourself about anything else.' "'We will not argue on this point, for we should never agree,' answered the new curé a little roughly, and the abbé Picot again began to express his regret at leaving the village, and the sea which he could see from the vicarage windows, and the little funnel-shaped valleys where he went to read his breviary, and where he could see the boats in the distance. Then the two priests rose to go, and the Abbe Picot kissed Jeanne, who nearly cried when she said good-bye. A week afterwards, the Abbe Tolbiac called again. He spoke of the reforms he was bringing about as if he were a prince taking possession of his kingdom. He begged the Vicomtesse to communicate on all the days appointed by the church, and to attend Mass regularly on Sundays. "'You and I are at the head of the parish,' he said, "'and we ought to rule it, and always set it a good example.' but if we wish to have any influence we must be united if the church and the chateau support each other the cottage will fear and obey us jeanne's religion was simply a matter of sentiment 
She had merely the dreamy faith that a woman never quite loses, and if she performed any religious duties at all, it was only because she had been so used to them at the convent. For the baron's carping philosophy had long ago overthrown all her convictions. The Abbe Picot had always been contented with the little she did do, and never chid her about not confessing or attending mass oftener. But when the Abbe Tolbiac did not see her at church on the Sunday, he hastened to the chateau to question and reprimand her. She did not wish to quarrel with the curé, so she promised to be more attentive to the services, inwardly resolving to go regularly only for a few weeks, out of good nature. Little by little, however, she fell into the habit of frequenting the church, and in a short time she was entirely under the influence of the delicate-looking, strong-willed priest. His zeal and enthusiasm appealed to her love of everything pertaining to mysticism, and he seemed to make the chord of religious poetry, which she possessed in common with every woman, vibrate within her. His austerity, his contempt for every luxury and sensuality, his disdain for the things that usually occupy the thoughts of men, his love of God, his youthful, intolerant inexperience, his scathing words, his inflexible will made Jeanne compare him, in her mind, to the early martyrs. And she, who had already suffered so much, whose eyes had been so rudely opened to the deceptions of life, let herself be completely ruled by the rigid fanaticism of this boy, who was the minister of heaven. He led her to the feet of Christ the Consoler, teaching her how the holy joys of religion could alleviate all her sorrows, and as she knelt in the confessional, she humbled herself and felt little and weak before this priest, who looked about fifteen years old. Soon he was detested by the whole countryside. With no pity for his own weaknesses, he showed a violent intolerance for those of others. The thing above all others that roused his anger and indignation was love. He denounced it from the pulpit in crude ecclesiastical terms, thundering out terrible judgments against concupiscence over the heads of his rustic audience, and as the pictures he portrayed in his fury persistently haunted his mind, he trembled with rage and stamped his foot in anger. The grown-up girls and the young fellows cast sidelong glances at each other across the aisle, and the old peasants who liked to joke about such matters expressed their disapproval of the little curé's intolerance as they walked back to their farms after service with their wives and sons. The whole country was in an uproar. The priest's severity and the harsh penances he inflicted at confession were rumoured about, and as he obstinately refused to grant absolution to the girls, whose chastity was not immaculate, smiles accompanied the whispers. When, at the holy festivals, several of the youths and girls stayed in their seats instead of going to communicate with the others, most of the congregation laughed outright as they looked at them. He began to watch for lovers like a keeper on the lookout for poachers, and on moonlight nights he hunted up the couples along the ditches, behind the barns and among the long grass on the hillsides. One night he came upon two who did not cease their love-making even before him. They were strolling along a ditch filled with stones, with their arms round one another, kissing each other while they walked. "'Will you stop that, you vagabonds?' cried the abbé. "'You mind your own business, monsieur le curé,' 
replied the lad, turning round. This ain't nothing to do with you. The abbe picked up some stones and threw them at the couple, as he might have done at stray dogs, and they both ran off laughing. The next Sunday the priest mentioned them by name before the whole congregation. All the young fellows soon ceased to attend Mass. The curé dined at the chateau every Thursday, but he very often went there on other days to talk to his penitent. Jeanne became as ardent and as enthusiastic as he, as she discussed the mysteries of a future existence, and grew familiar with all the old and complicated arguments employed in religious controversy. They would both walk along the Baroness's avenue, talking of Christ and the Apostles, of the Virgin Mary, and of the Fathers of the Church, as if they had really known them. Sometimes they stopped their walk to ask each other profound questions, and then Jen would wander off into sentimental arguments, and the curé would reason like a lawyer possessed with a mania of proving the possibility of squaring the circle. Julien treated the new curé with great respect. That's the sort of a priest I like, he was continually saying. Half measures don't do for him and he zealously set a good example by frequently confessing and communicating. Hardly a day passed now without the vicomte going to the Fourvilles, either to shoot with the comte, who could not do without him, or to ride with the comtesse, regardless of rain and bad weather. "'They are riding mad,' remarked the comte, "'but the exercise does my wife good.'" End of chapter 10, part A